Well, Summit Church, I can't speak for you, but I feel like I've been to church this morning. Can we thank Pastor Chris and that phenomenal choir for leading us this morning? That was the fourth time for me to hear that, and every time, man, it just moves my soul. Well, let me take a moment to introduce myself. My name is Will Taburin, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Summit, and I work with our discipleship ministries. And as we begin, uh, let me say, Summit Church, that because of your uh, radical generosity and your willingness to live lives that are all in, we are seeing phenomenal things in the life of our church take place. We see the extraordinary favor of God moving throughout each of our campuses right here as well at Briar Creek. And I want to give you just a glimpse of some of the ways that we have seen God work here at Briar Creek over the last several months. You may not be aware, but almost 50 people, 50 volunteers from the Briar Creek just a couple of months ago went to Central Asia to serve some of our teams over there and to pour out their lives just investing in them and encouraging them as they are on the field and seeking to share the gospel with many. And that was incredibly encouraging to them. But what's been one of the most exciting things that has come as a result of that is five or six of those people who went on that initial trip have come back and said, you know, that was my first time going, now I want to go and I want to take and lead a trip in 2014 to a strategic place uh, to see the furthering of the kingdom. We've seen families here uh, at Briar Creek, almost 50 families enter into the adoptive uh, process bringing orphans into their home and truly modeling for us and for the world the spiritual adoption that we have received as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Just last weekend, 20 men and women who, when they heard of a need of a a single mom, uh, that she needed help moving and had a young child at home and couldn't do it herself, just gladly and joyfully uh, went over to her home uh, to help her move. They had no connection with her, uh, but they just had a desire to serve and to care for her and put the needs of her above themselves. We've seen almost the number, we've seen the number of small groups double, the number of people engaged in small groups double. So God is working here at the Briar Creek campus, and I feel like we ought to give God thanks for that and pray and thank him for the ways that you have gone all in for the glory of God. And the good news, Summit Church, is that we're only at halftime of this all-in initiative. And that means for many of you who were here last year when when the all-in initiative was kicked off, it gives you an opportunity to examine and renew the commitment that you've made, to really think about that. And perhaps God is leading you to take additional steps uh, to live all in. But there are others of us who are a part of the thousand people that J.D. mentioned last week who weren't here last year when All In launched. And that's where my wife and I find ourselves. We weren't here a year ago. But I can tell you this, we are looking forward to engaging and getting All In uh, with the Summit Church and praying over the commitment God might be leading our family uh, to, to and through. And so we're excited about that. And I pray that over the next few weeks as, as we continue in this series that you'll take the opportunity to really consider how God is leading you, how God's leading you to go all in. Now, this weekend, we're going to continue in our series entitled Staying Faith. Last weekend, Pastor J.D. reminded us from Peter's experience of walking on water that when it comes to faith, it's not just how we begin, although how we begin is important, but it's also how we finish. We discovered that initial faith isn't enough. We need staying faith. And staying faith means focusing on taking that next step, constantly looking to Christ 
and confidently trusting in his character and confidently trusting in his promises. As Pastor J.D. challenged us, getting to the end of our lives, feeling like we've walked on water, is the result of a lifetime of small and faithful steps. And so this weekend, I want to build on last week's sermon by turning our attention to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 4, and the parable of the sower, where we find this essential truth that I pray that you will see woven all throughout the message this morning, and that is this. Staying faith, persevering faith, requires us driving the gospel deep. Staying faith requires us to drive the gospel into the deepest recesses of our soul. So look with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. The scripture says, And he, being Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole, gra- and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. Verse 6, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain." And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now jump with me down to verse 14 as Jesus explains the parable. He says, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path. Excuse me. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Verse 18. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world... And the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it, prov- and it proves unfruitful. But those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray together and ask the Heavenly Father to open up our eyes to the truth of his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you boldly and confidently asking that you would now send the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words, God, to penetrate and open our hearts to its truth. Father, we pray that you would remove from us all apathy and cynicism and callousness and rebellion. Father, so that we may really be hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls, that it nourishes our heart for your work, Father, and fill us with the joy that is our strength. And these things we ask for the glory and the honor of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And we ask all these things, believing that you will do it. In Christ's name, amen. So as we saw in this parable that Jesus teaches, immediately following the parable, 
The disciples come to Jesus and ask him for an explanation. And so Jesus graciously gives them an explanation. He says to them, listen, I am the sower. He says, I'm the one who has come and I am sowing seed all around. And that seed is falling on various types of soil. And he says that the seed that is sown in verse 14 is the word of God. It is the gospel. And that seed is falling on various types of soil. Some of the soil is hard, some of it's rocky, some of it's thorny, and some of the soil is fertile. Now, Summit Church, before we go any further, I want to share my heart with you about what I pray God will do over the next few minutes as we walk through this passage of Scripture together. I recognize that Jesus goes to great lengths to describe the various conditions of the heart. That's what the soils represent. They represent the condition of our hearts. And my prayer really is simply this, that whether you're a follower of Christ or whether you're here at the invitation of a friend and you're skeptical about the claims of Christ, is that you would be able to identify today which condition, which soil, which condition of the heart most accurately reflects the condition of your heart. And consider, perhaps even for the first time, how do I, How do I drive that message? How do I take that gospel message deep? Now, I recognize that there's going to be a temptation uh, within many of us to see ourselves only as the fourth type of soil. We're going to look at this and we're going to think to ourselves, man, I am the fourth type of soil. It's, it's It's a good soil and it's bearing much fruit. Well, I want us to know that it's our natural tendency. We are hardwired to seek to justify ourselves, and it is pretty easy. I can't speak for you, I can speak for me, but it's pretty easy to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And so I want to encourage you to resist that temptation this morning. I want to encourage you to resist that temptation just to get locked in and think, man, I'm, I'm right there, I'm that fertile soil. And to consider, and to consider, is my heart really open to taking the gospel deep? Or if I'm honest, is my heart right now hard? Is my heart right now being troubled through persecution and struggle and, and strife? Is my heart being consumed by the things of this world? Or is it genuinely open to take the gospel deep? That's my prayer for us this morning. So let's look more closely at these four types of soil that Jesus describes here. The first one he mentions is the hard soil. The hard soil is a soil that is hard and where the word of God just can't go deep. And for some of us, if we're honest, this is precisely where we are. We've been exposed to the claims of Christ and the gospel message. But for whatever reason, our heart isn't receptive to the message of the gospel and it just hasn't taken root. You know, perhaps you're here this morning and you're wondering, you know, I hear these claims of Christ But you know, you people talk about God being a good and benevolent God, but when I look around and I see all the suffering that's taking place in the world, I find it hard to believe that God is either good or omnipotent. When you think of, when you look at the the status of our world today and you see horrific things happening like we saw in the Philippines where, you know, upwards of 10,000 people have just been, have just died, you know, because of this incredible typhoon, you know, you look at that and go, man, I just don't see it. I don't see how you can worship a God that would allow that. You think to yourself, if God is really good, then why would God allow this to happen? And if God were really all-powerful, if God were really all-powerful, wouldn't he certainly interject himself into that and stop that if he were all-powerful? So he mustn't be. Or maybe you're here this morning and you, and you hear the claims of Christ and you hear what the Scripture has to say about hot-button issues like marriage or sexual ethics or right-to-life issues. 
And you think to yourself, man, the claims of, of Christianity, the claims of Christ are just far too narrow for me to adopt in our culture today, in our society today. Man, we're evolving far past that. Or perhaps you think, man, I just can't buy into the supernatural claims of Christianity. Man, I've read and I've studied and I've looked at science. I've looked at all the empirical evidence out there. And, and we're at an age and a time where, where we have the answers to a lot of things. And, and just to believe in the supernatural just seems pretty far stretched. It seems really out there. Well, can I encourage you with something? I believe, one, those are honest and fair and good questions. And these are questions and, and things that, that the people of God ought to be wrestling with. And we ought to look to what the Scripture has to say about these things. But I would say to you, if that's where you find yourself this morning, then the first step for you is maybe not to consider all these objections. Perhaps the first step for you this morning is to have an open mind and answer just this one question. One question. Was Jesus crucified and buried, and did he rise from the dead? Did the resurrection actually happen? Did the resurrection actually occur? Because if it's true... If Jesus actually went to the cross, if Jesus went to the cross as the Son of God and took upon himself all the judgment, all the condemnation, all the shame that we deserve, if he died, allowed his own perfect body to be, to be broken and poured out, if he died and was placed in the ground and literally rose from the dead three days later to prove to be the Son of God and therefore demonstrate his love towards us, if that is true, then perhaps just perhaps Jesus can begin to be trusted in some of these other things. Because if that's true, that's a game changer. That changes everything. That changes my outlook on life. But if it's not true, if it's not true and it didn't really happen, then who cares what Jesus had to say about any of these other things? Because he's just a raging lunatic walking around claiming to be the Messiah. And he's really just dead and in the ground. But if he did rise from the dead... He did rise from the dead, then that changes everything. And perhaps he can be trusted on these other things as well. So maybe that first step for you, if that's where you find your heart this morning, is to take that next step and really examine the claims of Christ. But Jesus goes further and he describes the rocky soil, which represents a heart that receives the word, but as soon as hardships arise as a result of faith, that newfound faith withers. So look with me carefully at what the scripture says in verse 16. It says this, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises, and I want you to underline this next phrase in your Bible. When persecution or tribulation or persecution arises on account of what? On account of the word, it immediately, they fall away. So Jesus is describing here, a people who've started well in the faith, but they haven't ended well. As tribulation and persecution arise, they just aren't finishing in the faith. You know, one of the things I love about reading the Gospels is, is recognizing that Jesus himself wasn't immune to people walking away from him. I mean, this is, you know, for many of us, we believe Jesus is the Son of God, and so here he is there teaching, and people are just, as he teaches, many people are saying, man, it's not worth it. I'm not going to follow you, and I'm going, to, I'm going to turn away from you. In fact, we see a perfect example of that in John chapter 6. Early in John chapter 6, we see Jesus feeding the 5,000. A familiar story where Jesus goes, and he takes some loaves and some fish, and he, he multiplies the loaves and the fish, and he's able to feed 5,000 men. It's probably more than 5,000, but at least 5,000 people he does with a few loaves and fish. 
But even prior to that, these people had watched Jesus perform these miracles. They'd seen him done all, do all these miraculous things. And so as they gather, Jesus begins teaching them, and he says to them, listen, I am the bread of life. So they're there, and they're, you know, they're acknowledging all that Christ is doing and all that Christ is saying. But then Jesus goes further. And listen to what he says in verse 53 of chapter 6. He says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now put yourself in their shoes for just a minute. Right? You've seen Jesus do all these things, and you're now hearing him say, Hey, hey guys, I'm the bread of life. My body, it's the true food. My blood, it's the true drink. And if you want to follow after me, you've got to eat my flesh and you have got to drink my blood. You can imagine what some of them are thinking. They're going, yeah, uh uh-huh, check please. You know? And what do they do? Well, the scripture says very clearly what they do. In verse 66 of chapter 6, he says, After this, many of his disciples, many of his disciples, people who had heard the word, people who were following him, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They heard the hard sayings of Jesus and what walking with Christ would require, and they turned and they walked away. Let me me unpack what Jesus was really trying to say there for a second. The flesh and the blood that Jesus is talking about, it's a reference to the sacrifice Christ would make in order to earn our salvation. It's a reference to his body literally being broken. It's a reference to his blood literally being spilled out in order that he might satisfy, on our behalf, the wrath of God. And when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's saying to them, listen, if you want to genuinely follow me, if you want to genuinely trust me, then you've got to come and you've got to feast on me. You've got to delight in me. You've got to hope in me. And if you do, and if you will, I will satisfy you like nothing else this world could ever offer you. So come and feast on me. And so whether you're in hardship or whether you're in great prosperity, I will be enough for you. But when the people heard the hard sayings of Jesus, yeah, they were comfortable with Jesus when he was healing people, multiplying food and drink and performing other miracles. But when they were confronted with what it would really cost to follow him, they abandoned him. You see, they wanted all the benefits of following Jesus. They just didn't want it with any of the cost. So listen, I know and you know that following Jesus, trusting Jesus in the day-to-day of life is hard. And let's be honest, the teachings of Jesus are hard. They're countercultural. They're extremely challenging. And often these teachings of Jesus go directly against what we feel deep inside of us. It's hard when the romantic love in your marriage has faded and you're tempted to leave your spouse and find that romantic love somewhere else. But when we do, we're buying that lie and we're failing to take the gospel deeper than our desire for romantic love. When we, for example, have been wronged and we want to take things in our own hands to protect and defend our name, again, when we let bitterness fill our hearts, then the gospel hasn't gotten any deeper than our need to be respected and thought well of. You see, if when the heat gets turned up in our life, when we experience hardship, when we experience suffering, as the scripture says, as a result of the word in us, 
then the condition, and we walk away, then the condition of our heart is just like the rocky soil that Jesus is explaining here to his disciples. But Jesus goes further. And he says there's a third type of soil, and that is the thorny soil. And that represents a heart that receives the word, but is soon distracted or deceived by worldly things. Look with me at verse 18. And the scripture says, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and the seed proves unfruitful. I can't speak for you, but man, when I read this verse, I felt just great conviction. I felt great conviction because I know that there have been times in my life where I've been distracted by the cares of this world. I know that there have been times in my life when I've been deceived by riches or deceived by pleasures that, that the world would have. And I think if we're probably honest, this is a, a great challenge for many of us here. But here's the thing. When we become distracted and deceived by worldly things, we're buying a lie that, that says living for Christ means giving up something better or something greater. Let me say that another way. When I become distracted, when I become distracted about the cares of the world or when I become deceived with riches or deceived with prosperity or deceived with, with things that I think will bring me great comfort, I'm buying into a lie that says, man, I've got to give, those, I've got to give something else up. I've got to give up that in order to have something better. And that's just not the case. The truth is we must give something up, but it's not something greater. What we give up is a life of wandering in the desert, looking to every created thing to satisfy our thirst, only to find that when we wander around, we're just drinking the sand. You see, the created things that God has given us are only intended to point us back to him. They are gifts that point us back to the giver. They are gifts that point us back to the one that says, I want to bless you and I want you to experience these things and enjoy these things. But those things are only to be a foretaste of the greater joy of just having me. You know, Tom Brady is the quarterback for the New England Patriots. And being a big Pittsburgh Steelers fan, I'm not a huge Tom Brady fan. I'm not a New England Patriots fan. But you know, Tom Brady has experienced tremendous uh, success. He's won multiple Super Bowls. He's married a supermodel wife whose name is Giselle, which is, of course, the most appropriate supermodel wife's name, right? Giselle. Here's Giselle, my supermodel wife. He's got kids, and, and you know, he's got all the money you can imagine. He can do anything that he wants to do. He can go anywhere that he wants to go. I mean, he's, he's at the pinnacle of his career. He's experienced all these things. But several years ago, when Tom was, I speak to him like we're, on, we're close. When, uh, when Tom was 27, uh, after he won his third Super Bowl ring, he was, out, he was interviewed by CBS. And I think it was on 60 Minutes. And, and Peter Park, our, our campus pastor at West Club, was sharing this with us. He was interviewed by uh, the guy at CBS, and they asked him, they said, Tom, what have you learned about yourself having won three Super Bowl rings? I want you to listen to what he said. He said this. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel that there is something greater out there for me? And the answer to that, church, is because there is something greater out there for him. And his name is Jesus. 
He is the one who can satisfy him. He's the one who can bring far more than a supermodel wife can bring, can bring far more than Super Bowl rings, can be far more than riches or wealth. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when we feast on him, we are truly satisfied. Paul would say it this way, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, because of the better, because of the more awesome, the more incredible worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In living to Christ, we gain something far greater. We gain an abundant and eternal life as a child of the very one who created us and died for us and will one day resurrect us in order that we can feast at his table forever and ever and ever. C.S. Lewis would say it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes our hearts are distracted and sometimes our hearts are deceived by these things. And the way to satisfy that is to begin to take the gospel deep. Now, as Jesus describes each of these first three conditions of the heart, we realize that the problem is always the same. The problem isn't the sower, and the problem isn't the quality of the seed. The problem is that the seed isn't going deep enough. It's always a depth issue. In other words, if when we evaluate our lives, we find ourselves identifying with the first three soils, then the problem is that the word, the gospel, isn't getting into the deepest recesses of our souls and taking root. We've got to press the word really deep. But here's where it gets encouraging. Jesus doesn't leave us there. He describes a fourth type of soil, a fourth type of soil that receives the word and bears this God-sized harvest. And that's the fruitful soil. Look at what the scripture says in verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear. Now stop there. You notice every single one of the soils, Jesus says, every single one of the conditions of the heart, they've heard the word. The hard heart hears the word. The rocky soil hears the word. The thorny soil hears the word. So does the fruitful soil. But here comes the one difference. They hear and, underline this in your Bible, and accept. They accept it and they bear fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. They hear and accept the word. In other words, they, they take what God has given and they begin to place it deep and put it deep into the recesses of their soul. Take it deep into their heart. They accept what the scripture has to say. They accept what the word of God has to say. And they believe it and they act on in faith in it. And when they do, God says, listen, there's going to be a bountiful harvest that's going to bring forth 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. In other words... We play an active role in driving the gospel deep. I love how Tim Keller said it. He said it this way. The gospel doesn't do something in you without you. The gospel doesn't do something in you without you. And what he meant by that is that we're not passive participants in our faith. We have to actively push the gospel deeper and deeper into our lives. You know, I just finished reading a book uh, on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you know who Bonhoeffer was, you, you know that he grew up in a wealthy family in, in Germany in the, the early 1900s and then uh, just desired to be a pastor. And so he went and became a pastor and began shepherding people. And then he was recruited into the military and he ultimately became a spy and even plotted to kill Adolf Hitler. 
And because of that, he was thrown in jail. And eventually, uh, after spending months, months in Nazi Germany concentration camps, he ended up being killed for his faith. And one of the things that just resonated, resonated to me about Bonhoeffer's life was throughout all of his writings, you see one consistent thing just coming over and over and over again, and that was this. Over and over and over again, Bonhoeffer took the gospel deep. And because he took it deep, he was able to have a sustaining faith that even, even took him to laying down his life, a willingness to do that for the sake and for the cause of Christ, doing what he knew to be right. He took, a deep, he took it deep. In fact, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he would write this. He would say, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which man must knock. Summit Church, the gospel we need to save us is the same gospel we need to sustain us. The more we go back to the gospel over and over and over again, as Bonhoeffer would say, the more beautiful and delightful Jesus becomes to us, and that begins to change everything. You know, I know that uh, for many of you, you don't know me well, and you don't know our family well, because we've only been here for a few months. And, and I can honestly say my wife, Julie, and I are excited about getting to know more people here at the Summit Church in the days and months ahead. Uh, but you may not know that we have four children, and our oldest is a daughter. Her name is Abby. Then we have three sons, Jackson, Blake, and Alex. And our youngest son is five years old. And what you probably don't know about Alex is that two and a half years ago, uh, Alex was diagnosed with autism. And I'll never forget sitting in that uh, pediatrician's office after they had been observing Alex for uh, a couple hours, the doctor looking at us and saying, Mr. and Mrs. Tiburon, I'm really sorry uh, to have to tell you that your son has autism. And we had noticed that, that things just didn't seem to be clicking with him. You know, he wouldn't respond when you would call his name. He wasn't talking. He wasn't pointing. He wasn't asking for things. He just seemed like he was distant. He was out there. And so for a, for a period of time, and there are still some times today, you know, we get a little sad about that. We get sad because we want our son to be whole. We want our son to be able to flourish and, and experience all the things that we think are, are important. And so we did what most parents would do. We kind of hitched up our britches and said, all right, we got to find some ways to help Alex develop cognitively. And so we put him on a specialized diet and we got him different types of therapies and we put him in a specialized school focusing on autistic children. And one of the things that we were encouraged to do was we had some folks say, listen, you may want to consider getting Alex an iPad. Because they're like, an iPad? Yeah, all right, every kid wants an iPad, right? And so no, they said, Getting an iPad for Alex will help him with his um, fine motor skills, you know, just learning to point and move things around on the screen, but it will also provide for him some apps that will help just his cognitive development, things helping with his ABCs and his numbers and learning how to spell his name and, and all of that. And so and we were like, that'd be great. And so we did, and, and Alex began just kind of learning his way around the iPad. And like most kids today, man, he had just kind of picked it up like that. And before long, Alex discovered how to go to YouTube, and there... Uh, he learned to find uh, his favorite songs, uh, and he likes to watch the little videos of cartoon animals and various things on there. Well, Alex's favorite song on YouTube is the Gummy Bear song. Now, I hear a little laughing, so I know that there are some people, at least, who are familiar with the Gummy Bear song. If you're not familiar with it, and you want to be tortured and come dangerously close to having a seizure, then I would encourage you to Google the Gummy Bear song. Uh, because you'll hear it, and the first couple times you'll, you'll laugh and think, ah, that's pretty cute, and then you'll want to, you know, obliterate your iPad and uh, smash it. And amazingly, 
uh, I, I went to look to see the other day uh, on YouTube. The Gummy Bear song has been viewed on YouTube 371 million times. My son is 50 million of those, all right? <laughs> and so he will come up to you, and Alex can't speak in full sentences, okay? And so Alex will come up to you, and he'll just look at you, and he'll go, iPad, gummy bear, gummy bear, gummy bear, gummy bear, gummy bear, gummy bear. And he'll change his tone, he'll change his inflection with you, and he'll get a little cute, you know, like, gummy bear, you know, gummy bear. And what he wants is he wants to watch this little green gummy bear jump across the screen singing this little I'm a gummy bear song. Now what's interesting is when I watch my son with that, he will go to that song over and over and over again because there's something in that song that brings him inexpressible joy and delight to the degree that he comes to his dad all the time and he says, gummy bear, gummy bear, gummy bear. And I thought to myself, man, isn't that exactly what Jesus wants us to do with him as his sons and daughters, to come to him, to come to dad and say, grace again, mercy again, give me the gospel again, father, I'm coming to you again, give it to me again and again and again and again, let me taste your mercies again today, let me experience them afresh and anew again today, again and again and again, that's what the father delights for us to do, and when we do, we find, just like my son finds that inexpressible joy, so we too find in Jesus the only source of our inexpressible joy and delight, that very thing. So he's saying to us, come to him, drive it deep again and again and again. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, well, how? How do we do that? How do we drive the gospel deep into our lives? Again, Keller said the gospel is not going to do something in you without you. So how do we begin to do that? And here's the answer. To have a staying faith, we must constantly apply the means of grace that God has given us to drive the gospel deep. For us to have a sustaining faith, we have to apply the means of grace that God has given us to drive the gospel deep. You say, Will, what are means of grace? Well, means of grace are are commands and disciplines that God has given us that will ensure that this gospel message is going deep. Now, let me be clear here. I'm going to share with you five means of grace, and this isn't intended to be an exhaustive list, list, It's intended just to give you a picture of some of the means of grace that God has given us. But I want to be careful here that you don't walk away with a list of to-dos. That you don't walk away with, oh man, I went to church today and I found these things that I have to go and do. Listen, these things aren't going to justify you. These things aren't going to make you a follower of Christ. These things come as as an overflow in your life. They come out of a deep understanding of what the gospel has done in you. And so these are all motivated out of a love of Christ, not in order to earn favor with God. So the first means of grace is prayer. It's prayer. God gives us prayer as a way to drive the gospel deep. When we come to Christ and when we pray the scriptures back to him, when we come to him and through our prayer life we're acknowledging just his promises, we're acknowledging his character, we're driving the gospel deep. When we come to Jesus and we confess our sins before him, knowing as 1 John 1 says that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, man, we're driving the gospel deep. When we come to Christ and we lay our requests at his feet, when we pray for our 
our family, when we pray for our sons and daughters, when we pray for our marriages and we pray for our co-workers, we pray for healing, when we do all those things, we are acknowledging the sovereignty of God and we are taking the gospel deep into the recesses of our soul. Charles Haddon Spurgeon would say it this way, prayer and praise are the oars by which a man may row his boat into the deep waters of the knowledge of Christ. Man, I love that. Prayer and praise are the oars by which a man may row into the deep waters of the knowledge of Christ. Prayer drives the gospel deep. The second means of grace is scripture memory and scripture intake. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we hear Pastor J.D. encourage us with this all the time, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that, don't miss this, so that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, as Joshua is preparing to lead the people of Israel into the promised land, he hears these words, Joshua, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night that you might be willing to observe everything that is written in it, for then your way will be prosperous, and then you will have good success. Psalm 119, verse 11, it's your word, God, that I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. When we take the scripture in, when we memorize it, we will be taking the gospel deep and enable to bear the fruit that God intends for us to bear as sons and daughters of God. The third means of grace is community. It's community. Community is going to be the context. It's going to be the environment in which change takes place. You know, the scripture is full of one another's that we are called to live out together. We're to love one another, serve one another, care for one another, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another. All these things over and over and over again in the scripture. And those things are intended to take place in the context of community. In Peter, we read that Jesus has made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that in order that we together might proclaim the excellencies of Christ who has brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has set aside for himself a people. That's why small groups are so important for us because we know that it's in the context of those small groups that we're gonna share life on life with one another, that we're gonna encourage one another and spur one another on to love and to good deeds and all the more as we see the day of our heavenly father approaching. Listen, if, you don't, if you're not in a small group and you don't know how to get connected, come and talk to one of us after the service with one of our prayer team members, and we'll help you figure out how to get connected. Fourthly, it's generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Man, that motivates us to be reminded that all the gifts God has given us are intended to point back to him and that now we're free because we have Christ. We're free to give these things away, telling people and proclaiming to people, listen, my hope is not in these things. My hope is in the one who died for me. It's generosity. Generosity encourages us and allows us to take the gospel deep. And then finally, are the ordinances. They're the ordinances like baptism. When someone is baptized, we watch them go through the water of baptism. They're buried with Christ under the water and they're raised to walk in the newness of life. When we see that happen, that ought to stir in our soul and remind us of our own salvation and remind us how God is at work in our community. But it also comes through the Lord's table, which we're going to take together in just a moment. When we hold the cup in our hands and we hold the bread in our hands, we're reminded that 
Jesus' body and blood was broken, and I'm called to come and feast on that. It's a time of examination. It's a time of reflecting back on what Christ has done, but it's also a time where we anticipate his glorious return where we will ultimately feast with him forever and ever and ever. These things are given to us that we can periodically see them displayed and demonstrated, the gospel put on display through baptism and through the Lord's Supper that encourages us to take the gospel deep. In just a moment, our prayer teams are going to come. But before they do, let me share this one last thought with you. In John chapter 12, following the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and before being offered up to be crucified, Jesus said this to his disciples. Don't miss this. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is Jesus speaking. And he says these words, truly, truly, I say to you, that unless a grain of wheat, unless a seed, falls into the ground, falls into the earth, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If the seed goes down into the ground and dies, it will bear much fruit. Summit Church, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. I heard a pastor say, In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was agonizing over what was to come, as he was there on his hands and knees praying and crying out to the Father with blood dripping out of his pores, he cries out to God, is there any other way for this cup to pass me by? Is there any other way? And Jesus heard from heaven this answer. My life cannot be released into them, into you and to me, without you, Jesus, becoming a seed. Unless you go into the ground and die, and he did, he became a seed that goes into the ground and dies. And through dying, power was released. For following his death came resurrection. And he did so willingly that through him we might have life and have life abundantly. So Summit Church, what type of soil are you? And what is God leading you to do today? Are you that hard soil where perhaps today God is leading you to surrender your life to him for the very first time, trusting that Jesus has been resurrected and knowing that if he is resurrected, then he can be trusted in these other things? Or is your heart like the rocky soil? You've been confronted with hardships, but today you have been reminded that God is leading you to trust him and his design for your life. You're reminded that when hardships come, he's going to work in and through those hardships to conform you into the image of Christ and bring glory to his name. Or maybe you're like the thorny soil who perhaps today you've seen that you've become distracted and deceived by the things of this world, but been reminded today by Christ that Jesus really is better. Or perhaps today you just need to stop and give thanks because you realize God is doing some incredible things in you. You know, my prayer for us is that regardless of where we are, that we would take a step of faith and experience afresh and anew the grace and the mercy of God. And through the means of grace that God has given us, and that we would drive the gospel deep and bear much fruit. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you this morning praising you and thanking you for Jesus the seed who willingly was placed into the ground and died 
in order that he might burst forth with resurrection power, proving to be the Son of God and worthy of our lives. So, Father, I pray that regardless of what type of soil we are, Father, that we would drive the gospel deep and we would begin bearing the bountiful harvest that you are calling us to, that which is 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, not for our glory or for the glory of the Summit Church, but for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things believing, God, that you will do it in Christ's name. Amen.